Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. In this episode, we're going to talk about the most theoretical, highest level abstract title that I think we've had in an episode, which should be a ton of fun, which opens a lot of potential avenues and doors for us to talk about an average developer doing slightly above average things. Web development and design, who would have guessed what we can do on both, even at a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. In this episode, we are joined by two amazing sponsors in Hashnode and Daily.dev. Hashnode is my favorite blogging platform for developers. It's where I take the posts that I put on my website and I cross post them over to Hashnode every single time to get a better audience and engagement and all those things. And then daily.dev is a browser extension that you can add to recommend articles relevant to you and your special interests in tech. And so that's something that Amy and I both use every day as well. So shout out to Hashnode and daily.dev for sponsoring. Now, I am excited to welcome, it's always fun to welcome someone who's been attending and listening in to a lot of our live sessions in the past. But Eric Guzman is on again to talk about, we'll see where this goes, but average developer doing slightly above average things. Eric, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be on finally. <laughs> Why being in the chat and now, now I'm on the stream, so it's awesome. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you probably had just as many acknowledgments in the podcast mm-hmm. as a chatter <laughs> as anyone else. So anyway, yeah, glad to have your support and have you on to be here for an official podcast episode. Woo. Do you want to do like your intro, tell people a little bit about your background, what you do, what interests you have? Sure thing. So yeah, thank you for the introduction, James. I'm Eric Guzman. I am a full stack engineer. I've been doing web development for like 12 years now. I tell people I'm classically trained, which basically means I went to college, got a computer science degree and learned that way. And, you know, started off doing Java initially, got laid off from that job and then picked up Ruby on Rails from there and been doing Ruby on Rails professionally ever since. So 10 plus years and along that journey, done a lot of random things early on. And then I do plenty of side projects. I do Twitch streaming and I stream my web development. I am a Microsoft MVP, which is like the professional like advocacy type of thing for VS Code tools. Oh, for VS Code tools? Yeah. That's a new thing, right? Yeah, it's like their web development, their dev tools, like vertical, mm-hmm. but I got it under because of VS Code. That's awesome. And then I also make tools for Twitch. So one of the one that's part of my namesake is I've created a tool called Stream Closed Captioner that adds closed captioning to Twitch and then also adds captioning to Zoom meetings and can add captions to your OBS client too. I've got one question to kick us off that. I think it'll be fun. So actually two questions. So give me your take. You said you're a classically trained, I love that, engineer. So you have a CS degree. So first question is, as you look back on that degree, how valuable do you think it was for you? And then the second question is, you went from Java to Ruby on Rails. What's your favorite stack to be in? So just a couple of questions to kick us off. Yeah, it was very valuable for me. And this is going to get slightly serious of the reasons why. And that's because I'm a person of color. I'm Latino. And I had no technical role models in my life. My dad was a used car salesman. My mom was kind of stay-at-home mom and worked in jewelry and kind of did other things. So I had no one technically to learn from. I got interested in programming, just playing around with MySpace page (laughs) and playing around with CSS and Angel Fire and GeoCities. And then once I graduated high school, which I did horrible in, by the way, I wanted a reset. So I went to community college. And community college was a complete academic reset for me. And then they also had a tag program. So they had a a transfer agreement that if you met all the credits and criteria, you basically had a reserve spot at a university. In this case, it was UCSD, which was on from San Diego. And I'm like, I want to do programming. I want to do computer science. And thankfully, California has good financial aid, both from the federal level and the state level. So I wrote out financial aid as much as possible and loans from there and got my degree. And that was set the tone for my academic success. So that's how I got started. And it's very valuable. And people always ask the advice and stuff like that. I'm like, it depends on where you're coming from, honestly, on how you want to take your your academic journey. But it it doesn't matter as long as you get there. (laughs) I also want to attack something on that's kind of, I don't know if it's relevant or not. But so I, do we say Eric and I work together, which is awesome. 
But Eric, since he live streams, that's one of the reasons why Zeal hired him. So we had some employees that like, saw his streams and wanted to hire him. And I remember Eric, when they were talking about doing your technical interview, I remember them asking in a stand-up, how do we do a technical interview when we've already watched him code for two hours? <laughs> it was like, well, what do we need to do? We already know how this is going to go. So James and I are just a huge proponent of building things in public, of using the content that you create as your resume. And Eric is a prime example. And this is how I'm going to tie it back in from going on forward in his career, sharing the knowledge and the things that he's learned. Yeah. And that's why I say like I'm an average developer because I don't do anything excellent, like relative to everyone else. I'm not what people perceive as the super great person that's out in public doing stuff. All I'm doing is I'm just building in public. I'm doing the exact same things I typically anyone else would do. I just build in public. And that's led to people knowing who I am, which is like weird because I'm just any other developer. I would challenge that, Eric, because I think you're great at what you do. And also, James and I have talked about before just having superpowers that at the end of the day, how I write a map array and how everybody else in this room will like map over array is the exact same. And so it's things like streaming and building things in public and how you teach other people and those special skill sets that you bring to a team that are your superpowers that might get you hired over somebody else. All right. And then to James' second question. So I've loved Rails for a really long time. Like, so Java was a, a struggle, especially this was early Java too. <laughs> and I think it might've been because of the way the job I had, because all I was doing was doing basically bug fixes for an existing application that integrated with Eclipse, the IDE. <laughs> but Ruby on Rails was great because it, it was so easy to use. It kind of triggered the imagination in terms of building stuff and just, and letting me be creative. And I really still enjoy Ruby on Rails. I've experimented with JavaScript. I've done Express. I haven't experienced with the new full stack kind of like frameworks for JS all too much other than like Redwood because over at Zeal, we're diving into Redwood. But the other framework that I really, really enjoy too is actually Phoenix, Elixir Phoenix. And my stream closed captioner was rebuilt from a Ruby on Rails to a Phoenix application. And I just absolutely love developing in that framework also. I got some questions around Ruby on Rails. I typically come from like a front end first perspective. And so I'm pretty curious to learn more about like how Ruby on Rails handles templating and like getting things to the browser. And once you're there, is there any kind of added interactivity like JavaScript to make the front end experience a little bit better or progressively enhanced? Yeah, so Ruby on Rails, like the initial setup for Ruby on Rails is pretty much standard MVC type thing where it's like, oh, you got your controllers, you got your models, and they have a really rich model layer that's really easy to use. And then the templating is just HTML ERB, which is just inter okay. you know, integrated. And then that just leads to statically rendered pages. So then a lot of up till maybe about a year ago, two years ago, it was just like people just integrate React into the front or whatever other JavaScript thing. But the new hot stuff is like the hot wire, right? which is the live updating, live reloading, you know, server-side rendering, pushing it to the browser. So it's like, that's the new hot stuff that everyone's like really good. And it's a good transition. That's where everyone else seems to be going. And I haven't played with it too much because the Elixir framework or Phoenix framework implemented it first and I've experimented with that. So I haven't had a chance to do that. And on our client projects, haven't had an opportunity to do that because everything's already built with React for the most part. But that's the new cool kind of like live update things. I'm still a little apprehensive because I got burnt a little bit by Rails dealing with WebSocket connections and stuff like that, which is why I had to rewrite my closed captioning application to be an Elixir because WebSockets weren't that efficient in Rails. So mm -hmm. I'm a little concerned at scale. <laughs> about that feature. Okay, that's awesome. And I'd be curious, like, how do you put React, you know, into like a Ruby on Rails application? Are you loading it through like a script tag on the front end? Or can you like bundle it and send it down? It's loaded off of a script tag. Okay. So like there's two versions. So there's two ways you can install, you can set up your Ruby on Rails application, you can use their built in pipeline, or you can bundle it with Webpack. It can come with Webpack. I think the gem is called Shaka Packer or something like that, which is adds a veneer over Webpack for easy configuration. And then the, you can do your React development and stuff like that, live reloading, all type of experience through that. 
And then you're just building a React app and then doing API calls and stuff. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, good to know that like Ruby on Rails really handles like a lot of the back end stuff easy, but you still have all the flexibility that you could possibly want on the front end, which is nice. Yep. It's interesting. You were kind of talking about trends of like where things are going. And I feel like the web development space is all over the map right now. Like we went through like the Ruby on Rails initially, like this is basically how we build web applications and even getting into Node and Express and having templating languages like EJS or something like very similar paradigm. And then we started getting into like everything's going to go to the front end with React and Angular Vue. And even before that, like Ember and whatever other front end frameworks there were. And then it was like, all right, let's try to optimize this. And then we went to like the focus on static stuff. And then we were like, all right, static's cool, but we don't have enough flexibility to do all the things we want. So let's go back to the server to do some stuff and mix those things. And it's like, it's this weird circle of, I don't know, my brother-in-law has always said he's nine years older. Like things come back in waves, like things from the 80s are now like super popular again, for example. And it's almost something similar in the web development space of like, now we want to do more stuff on the server. But I think the cool part about that is like now we just have more and more tools to be able to pick and choose when to do what based on specific needs of our application, which I think is kind of like, it's a lot to learn and be educated about, but it's a prime spot to be in as a web developer. Yeah, one of the things that was kind of picking up a lot and it's still picking up is like the concept of serverless. It's like, oh, get rid of like you maintaining the server and stuff like that. Now you can go serverless. And then I gave a talk at ElixirConf talking about going from serverless to serverful using Elixir because of challenges with serverless. And then even all the frameworks and stuff like that, you can choose to do either go serverless or serverful and stuff like that. So before it was like everything serverless and now it's kind of like, wait a minute, not exactly. <laughs> yeah, and now like there's this new thing coming in with all these edge runtimes. And I'm still trying to wrap mm-hmm. my head around that, but it's just like they're close to the user, they're really fast and it feels like serverless. And now entire applications can run there like everything that Remix does just runs on the edge, which is wild. And like, that's the framework that I'm kind of, you know, betting the horse on next in this next wave of like things moving back towards the server. Remix is kind of doing it for me. So Eric, we've got a question. I think our answers, at least Amy and I, are probably pretty (laughs) set. But question is, what do you think of Svelte? And out of curiosity, have you used Svelte? Do you have... An opinion on Svelte, SvelteKit? I have not used Svelte yet. I've used Angular. I've used Vue. I've used React. I have not touched Svelte, although <laughs> everyone I've talked to and stuff like that really enjoyed Svelte, like really, really enjoyed Svelte. I would say the one that I've enjoyed out of the three I've tried is actually Vue in terms of like just kind of getting started in Bootstrap and stuff because it's like that in-between layer between Angular and React. And I've done professional development work in Angular, and I just, I just couldn't get into it <laughs> multiple times. I did develop professional development work with Angular one, and then I did it in Angular when it was finally like Angular five, yeah. and I, both times I wasn't digging it too much. <laughs> one of my favorite talks at Magnolia JS was a guy that converted a React component to a Vue component, and it was a great way of showing the differences and comparing the two frameworks or libraries. I was going to kind of call out the Angular piece. Like Angular, I feel like gets a lot of mixed feedback. And actually, Brad, I don't know if you remember, we did a crossover episode with you early on. And we had an open question to the group of what's your favorite framework. And I was like, I'm going to be super controversial and choose Angular. And it wasn't that it was really my actual favorite framework. But to me, there is a ton to like about Angular. Like just giving you more structure, having TypeScript by default, which was more special than now. Like everything has a flag to add TypeScript. But just having those... Things built in and having those like bumpers, I guess, to like kind of keep you in your box of how you organize code and things like that. And there's also, I don't know if y'all know much about Nest.js. It's kind of the Angular equivalent in terms of structure and everything for the backend. I don't know if it uses like Express or something underneath the hood, but it's for building your backend API endpoints, for example, or your backend projects in Node. But it gives you those like strong typing and controllers and annotations and stuff like that. So I think like right time and place for the right audience and right group. There's lots of benefits. That's actually got me thinking because of now like the prevalence of TypeScript up and down the stack and across the network chasm in JavaScript land, does Ruby on Rails have types and how do they do with like, you know, making sure your data is good everywhere? I suppose it's all running on the server. So like if they have types, everything's going to stay consistent. 
So Ruby is one of the dynamically typed languages. So okay. same experience with JavaScript, right? So it's duct typing. That is the thing for Ruby on Rails. It's all about duct typing. If it acts like it, then it is it. <laughs> and that's like the beautiful flexibility of things. But then it's also, yeah. you know, the thing that shoots you in the foot. They are adding typing to Ruby. There is a spec for Ruby 3 that it can be done but it's not easy to adopt. And at least I haven't looked at a project that's has successfully used it in production right now. <laughs> I think JavaScript slash TypeScript may be a leader in that sense of moving back to at least having the option for strong typing. Because JavaScript was the epitome of, and it scared me because of this, like do whatever you want, it'll be fine, maybe, or it'll break and it'll be your fault and you just won't know beforehand. But TypeScript has come in and gotten so much backing and support and people rave more and more and more about TypeScript. I could see that concept now applying to other languages like Ruby and I don't know what other examples, but saying like, hey, this is great that we can do anything and have the ultimate flexibility, but also people really enjoy these types and they enjoy better IntelliSense and they enjoy better experience to know what parameters they're passing to a function, et cetera. So I could see like the JavaScript TypeScript combination kind of being a leader of modernizing in that specific way some of these other languages and frameworks that people use every day. Yeah, and I feel like it's well executed and stuff like that. And just the fact that you can bring in typings into your non-TypeScript implemented libraries or whatever mm -hmm. and then still leverage that because of the IntelliSense and all that type of stuff is great, is absolutely great. So I love what they're doing with JavaScript. And I do enjoy doing TypeScript. Yes. <laughs> TypeScript, <laughs> FTW. Eric, do you want to talk a little bit about your your interest in streaming? Like what kind of things do you stream about? And then specifically, I want to learn more about the tools and things that you've created from a technical perspective. I think that's always one of the coolest stories or benefits of being a developer. It's just like we have the ability to create almost anything that we want to. So if we see a need, if we see a gap in something, we can go and create software to help fill in that gap. So yeah, just kind of start us, give us a little bit of background on how you got started, why you got started, and then some of the technical things that you've done to support streaming efforts. So the reason I got started, it was I ended up getting a new job and I was feeling comfortable and I was feeling inspired. Like it was a good work culture environment and I wasn't feeling burnt out doing day-to-day -day development. So going home and I wanted to enrich myself. And I'm like, well, you know, trying to do my own side projects, whatever, the console's right there, my gaming PC's right there. It's kind of tough. So I'm like, you know what? I'll hold myself accountable and I'm going to stream my development work. So like, I just got the random idea to do it. And it's like, I'm going to set a set schedule and I'm just going to do this. So I hold myself accountable and then I can just, people can just watch, you know? So it is a thing. So that's how I got started. And I just kept on going with it. And through that was the natural progression of building stuff. So it's like, well, the easiest thing to do for building stuff is just let's build for Twitch. Twitch has like IRC chat, Twitch has APIs, onto stuff. So I will just build random integrations for stuff. So like chatbot. And then like I, I built like some overlay animation stuff using a library called Phaser.js, which is a JavaScript game engine. So if you're looking to do stuff with JavaScript, more ideas and want to make games, Phaser.js is an open source one that's awesome to do. So I did integrations with that, with the avatars, because since it's a web view, I can put that over my overlay and people control it. And I think someone in our chat, Surly Dev, was, you know, made a reference to that earlier. And then from there, it was Twitch announced extensions, which is their like like an, an integration to integrate with Twitch platform itself and build web apps, little tiny web apps that live on your channel page and stuff like that. And I was like, oh great, like this is my wheelhouse web dev, and I am going to build extensions for that. And then yeah, and then I started building stuff for that now. <laughs> and I'm not sure if the rest of you. Are, I'm not actually really familiar with what extensions means in the Twitch ecosystem. So I've done bots and I have my bot running now if anyone wants to turn on the lights, although someone tried to run the guest command and I don't have that running, so I apologize. But can you elaborate a little bit more on what extensions are in the Twitch ecosystem? Yeah, so extensions are basically, think of it as a, like a little app that you can install on your channel page. So the page that 
everyone, at least on the Twitch side of things, or even on the YouTube side, if you can imagine it, like you go and load the page and then over the video, there could be an overlay that interacts with stuff. So like if there could be a game overlay that shows information. So if you're playing Destiny 2, it can show your loadout. It can do things like there's an extension called Crowd Control so that if they're playing like Mario or some other game, like people can do interactions and there's an integration with the game to send extra like bombs or whatever, or even other extensions that can take over your keyboard. So like it could force them to like, if they're playing a tactical game, like force them to throw a grenade or something like that randomly or start yelling. (laughs) So that is the product itself is to add. And all they are is just little applets. They're HTML, CSS, JavaScript that's hosted on the Twitch CDN that you install. And then they have APIs to either integrate with locally, or if you're more advanced, you need more advanced features and stuff like that, then you have to go and do requests to what they call the EBS, which is just the extension backend service. So a server to do requests too. Okay. So like the type of things that I've created were like OBS overlays, where it would just be like HTML that would sit over your OBS frame to add in, you know, let's say things like sponsored by Hashnode and daily.dev up here. But you're saying that it's kind of the same thing on Twitch where it's shown visually over your stream, mm-hmm. but then it also just offers integration into Twitch's backend. Yeah. And it shows over your stream and it allows the viewer to interact with it. So basically it's a little web page over the video and then they can click on it and look at stuff. So that's why I say like, if you're playing Destiny 2, they can click on it, it slides out a thing, shows your loadout and stuff like that. Maybe the part of the map you're on or if you're running a raid, all that type of stuff. Or they could do little mini games and stuff like that. Since it's over the video or you can install it under the video in those information panels that you can install. So one extension that I have that lives in the panels, not over the video is you can create a Twitch team. So there's Twitch native teams. If you're a partnered streamer, you can create teams and add people to that. But there's plenty and plenty of affiliates and other people that can't be a part of a team or create a team. You basically can create your own team, create a title, add a bunch of people in, and then it shows it in the panels down below. And you can scroll down and then it shows who's live and you can click on it and it'll take you to their page so you can follow them and stuff like that. That's slick. Okay, so it's all web technology powering this. Can you talk in a little bit more detail about Twitch's like backend service? Is it a like a REST API? What is it and how do you interact with it? So Twitch's API is the public API, mind you, is a RESTful API. Okay. that you can use. They have, you know, it's, it's all standard crud of fetching information about the channel, the user. They use OAuth tokens. Also, so depending, it's all scope based off like permissions and stuff like that, whether you're doing, you know, requests as a server or requests as on behalf of the users because OAuth and yeah, OAuth is always the main question people always ask and I want help on. So I'm, I'm talking about OAuth and some people are like, what's that? But it's that like Facebook connect feature where like you click on a link to log in with Facebook, log in with Google, it takes you to Google, you click yes, like you come back, you got a token. The server got a token and they can do requests on your behalf to fetch information. And they also have a, another service called Event Sub that can do web sockets and web hooks. So your server can receive information. So they're building out a lot of good stuff on their API. Okay, cool. So this means not only do you have to deliver like a front end piece over to Twitch's CDN to host statically, you probably have your own server running in the background listening to these like WebSocket events or from Twitch's like subscription type application. Yeah. So like with the Twitch Teams extension, when they set up their stuff, that's storing it on my back end for that's been rewritten to use Elixir, hosting and storing it in Postgres database and all that type of stuff. And then they do a request to fetch my information. And then after I fetch that information, I use Twitch on the client side on when they're viewing it. I do a request for my extension, that little web app, to Twitch's API to fetch who's live. I iterate through them, fetch who's live, and then sort the list based off of that. So I try to leverage as much of Twitch's API instead of having to do all everything on the back end. And then the same thing with the closed caption extension. It's all driven by the back end, and that is a lot more complex, but there's a broadcaster that goes to a different dashboard and kind of like activates it and then it sends captions to the overlay or to the extension so people can see the captions over the video. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about Hashnode. So Hashnode makes it easy to start a blog in seconds on your own custom domain for free. It's fully optimized for developers and supports writing in Markdown, rich embeds, publishing from a GitHub repository, syntax highlighting, and edge caching with Next.js blogs deployed on Vercel. 
On top of this, your article gets instant readership from the growing community. James and I have talked before on the podcast about how valuable creating content is and how developing an online presence really does give you respect and credibility in the tech space. And really, there's no better way to do that than through Hashnode. So be sure to go to Hashnode.com and join the community. Special thanks to Hashnode for being a Compressed FM sponsor. So let's talk about your hosting solutions. What did you pick and do they... Do they cost you a lot of money each month? You know, I know that the stream captioner is pretty popular. Yeah, so for all the other extensions, I had built that using serverless because I was like, why not? I want to learn serverless. So I built it using serverless. I used either Google Cloud, the Firebase functions, there's mm-hmm. that service. And then I transitioned over to Azure's function service. So it's all Node.js doing simple requests and then using NoSQL database Firestore. And that, you know, that was great and all, but then, and it was free. It was free because traffic mm-hmm. was low. And then as traffic increase and popularity increase and storage increases, things start to cost money. And then now you're dealing with variable costs because who knows how many requests are coming in, how many fetches of data are happening. So that is on an initiative to move to Elixir. I'm rewriting all that stuff and moving it to one singular Elixir application. And then that rolls into the next thing I'm going to talk about, which is the stream close captioner one. I wrote that in Ruby on Rails because I knew Ruby on Rails. I didn't know Elixir then to get to bootstrap everything up. And that worked fine using WebSockets. But then because of performance issues, request issues, latency and stuff like that, I had ended up rewriting that in Elixir Phoenix. And so all of that whole backend is in Elixir Phoenix. And then because of that success, I created a separate Elixir Phoenix application that's going to be basically the one server to rule them all for the other extensions. And the other app is where all my other extensions are being rewritten and are going to be hosted in one single application instead of distributed in a bunch of different serverless functions across different NoSQL databases. Now it's going to be a central database with a central API, which is a GraphQL API. And then since it's a central database, in the future roadmap is like a broadcaster or user can log in on the website and then see all their data and see how everything mingles across all the different extensions. Okay, so did you do anything to, like when you had bills starting to come in, did you just eat the cost or have you attempted to monetize any of this stuff? So I have no plans to directly monetize stuff. So for the smaller things, I just eat the cost and then moving it over to Elixir for the smaller things. The Elixir Phoenix server is so efficient that I don't have to pay anything. Uh, um, I'm using fly.io to host it and their free tier is enough to support all the traffic that the serverless functions were costing me for invocations and for the database stuff. So that's really awesome. The certain close caption is a more complex thing and I've been eating the cost since the beginning for that. The inception of Stringcoast Capture was under a hackathon project. And if you did the hackathon project, you were awarded credits. So I had like AWS credits for like a year to cover most of the costs initially, which was great. And then after that, it started costing me around $150 with the Ruby on Rails implementation. And that wow. was like with like 100 broadcasters using it. And then I, I, at the time, I didn't know how many viewers were actually seeing the captions. But around that time, I started experiencing scaling issues with Ruby on Rails because the way the string Coast Captioner works is it uses, there's this really awesome speech recognition API in, based in the browser that allows you to do speech to text for free. And it, it was originally supported in Chrome and it just basically just talking to the mic, spits out text. And so the broadcaster would go to my dashboard, separate off third-party site. They would install the extension on their channel page. And then when they want to use the captions, they go to my site, stream-cc.gooseman.codes. And they click start, it would listen to their mic, and then it would take that and then the text would come out. And then I would send that text over WebSocket connection, because it's better than sending requests to the back end. And then the back end would then would process that, do some profanity filtering, and a couple other things like translations. It would do translations if they activated that. It was a pay for feature at cost to because translations aren't cheap. And then that would broadcast out to other viewers using Twitch's native pub sub API that was restricted to one request a second. And so that was working up to fine until I reached around 150 broadcasters actively using it. And then like 
memory became an issue. I had to keep on restarting my real server every once in a while. And also I had to like scale it up just to deploy for it to build the Rails app. And so it was starting to cost money and it wasn't scaling well. So then I had rewritten that in Elixir and for the same cost, like 150 bucks, I was able to support everyone. And then also on top of that, instead of using Twitch's native PubSub API to broadcast out the messages to all the viewers, I was actually able to implement GraphQL subscriptions and have every single client, every single user that are viewing the streams do a direct WebSocket subscription connection to my server and just send out captions that way. So I no longer need the PubSub API with the one second restriction. And sometimes there are outages when they're doing rolling deployments and stuff like that. I can just broadcast whatever I want, however I want, and easily deploy that. And now that is getting up to like thousand daily active broadcasters using the platform. And I get around an average of like 30 to 40,000 GraphQL subscription events. So that's usually like viewers in a day. Or at, no, at any single time, not in a day, every single time. I haven't averaged it across the day. And that's costing around like $300. But shout out to my work, Zeal, because they're sponsoring a portion of that. And then I do have Patreon support that covers a portion of that, and the rest is out of pocket. So I don't charge for it, but I do ask for help. Because accessibility is an important thing, and it sucks to have to charge for it. It's better just to make it free and make it really easy for everyone to use. So I want to keep it free as long as possible. And if I'm having difficulty, then I'll just keep on yelling out like, hey, I'll, I'll make it more obvious that I need support, monetary support. <laughs> and the number of users is just wild. Like that's a very successful project. How long has it been in operation, the captioner? It's been in operation for almost four years now, wow. almost four years. And then through the pandemic, it just shot up more because you know more people were more inclusively minded. And it keeps on growing and growing, which is awesome and also scary because every single time it grows, I have to like increase the memory just a little bit. Luckily, like the only limitation right now I have for the application is just the memory footprint because the WebSocket connections are persistent. So they take up a couple kilobytes each, but across 50,000, 100,000, then it starts to run out of memory. And I've experienced that a couple of times where things are crashed. The biggest one I had was a League of Legends competition went live in Brazil for the championships and they installed the extension. So mm. immediately like a hundred thousand new connections came in and I crashed the whole thing out of memory errors like crazy. <laughs> I feel like that's such a good progression of a story because there's always a debate about how much you try to optimize up front, like optimizing for th like a scale level that you probably would never reach. And so general advice is build a thing, make it work, and then like make the changes along the way. And it feels like you've been through that path and that journey of having to move frameworks or implement sockets, web sockets, and a bunch of other things. And that's really cool to hear not only the adoption, but also from a tech side. Because I imagine there's a lot of learnings that come with that too. Like you're just having to respond to things slowing down or maybe things stopping and then you have to go and figure out why and how to fix it. And that sounds like just a fun journey, I think, in addition to being rewarding by seeing so many people use it. Yeah. And it just started with, I just wanted to build in public. And it's like, I'm just, mm -hmm. I just want to learn stuff. And I just kept on building and building and people like are starting to use this stuff. I'm like, holy moly, you know, like, oh my God. You know? <laughs> it was also neat to watch Eric go through that progression and the data that he had. So he mm -hmm. would share in standups, like look at these, spikes and how much flipping over to Elixir has made a difference. It's a really interesting case study. And those are the things people that are learning or just want to get better as developers. And we always give the generic, like, how do I get better? Well, build stuff. But this is the exact reason why, because when you're in a tutorial, like you're only going to experience the problems that are already being solved for you. But once you have stuff out there, for real people to use, you start to realize there's a, a whole other world of things that could potentially go wrong. I remember following a tutorial in Node and not realizing there was some sort of, I don't even remember what it was specifically, but something that would only work on localhost because I think I was keeping like session cache in memory instead of storing sessions in a database or something because that's how the tutorial did it. And then I deployed my website. I was super excited. I went to it and it crashed. I was like, oh no. I have no idea why this is happening, but that was then one of those learnings of there's just something different about having something actually deployed, having it in production, and then especially at this point, like having so many people use it, 
Because then you start to find out a lot of extra things that you just hadn't considered before. Yeah, that's the important thing. Just start building because it's a forcing function. Because once you come across a roadblock, you got to solve that thing. And then you got to solve the next thing. And then you'll be like, wait, I want to do this thing. How do I do this thing? Okay. And because of that, like my knowledge is sprinkled across a bunch of things. Like the way I think of myself is like, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. But having an overall worldview of things is an asset and you know, it's still surprising to this day of when we're at work during a meeting and talking about stuff and like someone brings up something random or a a weird technology. And it's like, oh, I actually have a little bit of knowledge in that. It's like people that they brought up NLP, like natural language processing. It's like I played with Azure and natural language processing. I know a little bit about that or computer vision, parsing invoices and stuff like that. It's like, oh, I played it with computer vision because I was just fooling around with parsing documents, you know, just for fun, because I was thinking about like, the idea of doing a Star Trek quiz website because none exists. Like, <laughs> and yeah. I love it. I've told people this a lot, like working on side projects and doing extra tutorials and things early on in my development career. I came into to work so many times and found a problem that I'd already solved at home to your point. And so at that point, like I'm able to walk in with like seeming like I just really know what I'm doing. But the reality is I just experienced and solved that problem like a week ago at home which makes you then better prepared. And you always have to kind of like balance brag, not bragging, but like celebrating that benefit. Cause you, you also want to be respectful of like work-life balance and you shouldn't necessarily be spending all of your time outside of work. Also continuing to try to learn. So you're better at work. But if it's something that you're excited about, you have something that you enjoy building. It is going to then lead to extra learnings that you can take back to work. And I think it just goes to show that uh, to be a successful developer, you don't have to be like really smart or like, you know, just extra special at coding. It just comes down to like all the experiences you've had and you can draw on that when you're trying to solve the next problem. Yeah, it's not about the amount of years you've had of experience. It's the amount of war stories you have. And that's why startup culture is a pressure cooker and can be extremely stressful, but you do so much there that you can gain tons of experience. And I was in that space. That's how I got involved in Ruby on Rails. And you can definitely BS like how many experience you have because you learned so much. So it could be like, you've only spent two years doing Ruby on Rails or other things, but you can just BS and say like, I got five because of everything you did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was on a panel the other day about breaking into tech. And one of the questions was like, what do we do when all the jobs say require two years of experience? And that's pretty common struggle for like getting your first job is finding one that actually expects a reasonable amount of experience. But so much of our advice was like, you have to be able to craft your experience into a story that fits that, right? And like number of years doing something doesn't necessarily imply an equivalent amount of experience. Some people, and I've been around this a lot at FedEx, some people go to work every day and they do the same stuff and they're not looking to learn. They're not looking to get better. They're not paying attention to what's going on around them. They're not working with other people to see other takes or other options on how to solve problems. They're just there and they're doing their thing and they get nothing wrong with being excited to get paid, but they get their paycheck and go home versus the people who like are investing their energy, not only into like doing what is required, but also paying attention around them to what's going on and kind of thinking towards continuing to build their skill set for their career going forward. And this is such a weird career path. Like no other career path Mm -hmm. says leave a job and keep practicing. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) But it's totally invaluable to like learn on the side or look at new technologies or just gain more of those experiences on the side. But I think there is something about developers in general. We're curious. We're problem solvers. We look for challenges and things to build because that's our natural inclination as people who create things. I wanted to take a brief minute to talk about daily.dev. First, I think we all recognize how hard it is to stay up to date with the latest and greatest within the tech community. But there are resources like daily.dev that provide a community-based feed of the best developer news, helping you stay current. Daily.dev aggregates hundreds of sources every few minutes and creates a personalized feed just for you according to your interests. So whether that's web dev, data science, or Elixir, anything you might be interested in, it has content for you. There is a web version of the product if you want to see exactly what the feed looks like. Otherwise, just go over to daily.dev and there's a link directly on the homepage to install their extension within your browser. From there, Anytime you want to load a new tab, you'll see the newsfeed. James and I both have it installed and use it to stay current ourselves and 
so should you. So go check it out at daily.dev. Special thanks to daily.dev for being a Compressed FM sponsor. Slight shift in subject. Eric, talk to us a little bit about your following, your audience. Do you have like mostly positive stories about the folks who watch you on Twitch? Have you had any like horror stories, funny things that have happened? Trying to think. So for my following on Twitch, it's a bunch of developers, first of all. (laughs) The following I try to is kind of mentorship, teaching, helping others. Because it's Twitch, it's a lot of kind of like meme stuff (laughs) and a lot of like comments on like interacting because of the tools I built and the commands I've done. Most of the enriching kind of like interactions I've had is through the work that I've done with the captioning extension though, like lots of people tweeting out stuff. Like I have a tweet deck with like following my handles of the different references for the way you can reference my extension and seeing people tweet this out like, oh, I'm using this. Or someone's asking, you know, like I want to use closed caption. I see people use it. What are y'all using? People like at mentioning me and in the extension saying like, oh, this is great. People occasionally either like coming to chat and say, oh, you know, I use your extension. Thank you very much. Or going to other people's Twitch streams because sometimes I'll just like browse, like I have a showcase page of everyone that's actively using it at any given moment. Oh. So sometimes I'll just pop into a random stream and just say hello and stuff like that and see what's going on. And then, like, you know, they're like, oh, thank you and stuff like that. And just kind of like realizing that it's reached more people because tools like closed captioning aren't just for the people that are hard hearing. There's people that are also have sensory problems. Like, you know, during a game, during gameplay and stuff like that, things can get really loud, really overwhelming and stuff like that, so people have to mute. And people just are really appreciative of that, or like the really sweet ones are like, oh, I stream and I installed your extension, so my wife that is hard of hearing can actually, you know, watch me and listen. And it's like, oh my God, like, that's so amazing. (laughs) And those are the most enriching and awesome interactions that I always remember. Didn't you have a school that was using it? Yeah, that's how uh, I ended up, I can't remember what university, but during the pandemic, there was someone that was familiar with the extension, the closed captioning through Twitch. And they're like, oh, you know, I'm a professor. I do Zoom meetings. I know Zoom has a captions sort of API thing. I'm wondering if you could integrate your tool with Zoom. I was like, okay, let's figure this out. And so in a week, it was like a simple REST API that you can just send text to. Like you do the URL, you send text to it, you just, you put the sequence of the text that's coming in. So like, I guess it knows an order of what's coming in. And I did that like in a weekend and added it in. And yeah, so there's a couple universities, professors on the East Coast, especially during the pandemic that were using it. And there are some people that are still using it now because I have some new relic statistics of when detecting when activity is happening. And I can still see it occasionally spike during like 11 a.m. my time. Like I'm like, oh, there's and it lasts for an hour. So I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a professor using it for his class. And like, that's really cool. That's really, really cool. That is super cool. That's always the huge rewarding thing for me is seeing the positive comments and appreciation for content or an extension, et cetera. And it's funny. I kind of, I joked about this in the chat, but you mentioned like you have a list of people using it and their channels and you may go in and watch their stream. And I would be so tempted to be like, nice extension. I built that. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Like not so humble brag. (laughs) It's always awkward because like, I'm a very introverted person and not, Mm. you know, again, like I I just perceive myself as an average developer and I was going and sometimes I'll just like, kind of like do a emote of like, hi. And they're like, Oh, Hey. And they're like, Gooseman, like the Gooseman, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, and then they do like a shout out, and I'm just watching and making sure everything's still working, and you're playing a game I like. So. You just got to lean into it 100%. Yes, it's that me. showcase page is like genius. Like, not only is it a great way to showcase your extension, but it's an insight into your users, and you just get to see how far the reach goes. Like, you could see all sorts of different streams using it where you wouldn't necessarily think it's not just developers, it's gamers or lectures or all the different categories on Twitch that can take advantage of this. So it's got to just make you give you the warm fuzzies inside to be like, man, this thing is really making a difference. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I guess like the culmination to this day is like I did a panel discussion at TwitchCon talking about accessibility and inclusivity there. And it was on the last day, the last panel at competing with the ending keynote. So there was only a hand, there was a lot of people there, but there was people there that thanked us and stuff like that. And it was really awesome. The person I had a streamer, Snuggy Bun, 
that was an advocate for accessibility. And my other co-panelist, his name is Alejo, he also created a closed captioning extension on Twitch and also created a plugin that lets you display your pronouns on Twitch. So you could add it in and see everyone's pronouns if they added it in. We just talked about bu- building that, what the difficulties of building that, why you should build it, and like trying to toe the line between like publicly of people using the extension or using tools, building t- and trying to get them to promote them to build more tools and reach out to the community. And also, you know, think these this stuff costs money. <laughs> yeah, and you should definitely be getting more money than just what it takes to keep the lights on for your extension. So definitely want to plug your Patreon and say, if you want to support open source developers or people making tools for other people, please consider doing that. Yeah. And that's the weird thing. I'm trying to like more weave together myself and the extension was before it was kind of separate. So now I have to think about branding and kind of weave it together to try to associate the extension with the person and then try to get like sponsorships and stuff like that. So that was one of the initiatives I had at TwitchCon is start to do a little bit of network and start asking a little bit of questions to figure out how might I get more sponsorship and stuff like that. (laughs) I like it. Last question before you wrap up, or maybe just it's a opportunity for you. So we had a form field originally for a soapbox title. So if you had something that you wanted to talk about for 60 seconds or so, what would that be? And put in the entry, learn, do, teach, uplift which is very similar. I think we have a lot in common with learn, build, teach ideas. But do you want to talk for a minute about what learn, do, teach, uplift means to you? So I am really a big proponent for mentoring and helping others. You know, go out and learn. Build, you know, learn stuff. And as you're learning, and this has been kind of slightly the undertone of the whole conversations that we've been having, is go and learn stuff. Just go do it. If you're interested in something, go do it or go learn about it. And then try to build anything with it. It can be silly. It can be a one-page thing, whatever it is. So, yeah, just build on it. And then, you know, after you build on it, talk about it. Help others. And the thing is, no one ever develops in a vacuum. We're all standing on the shoulders of giants. And the thing that makes everything better and the way it makes our community better is by helping others, advocating for inclusivity, and don't be tribal. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're building with. Don't listen to tech Twitter in terms of like, oh, you know, like what is the best framework? It is this and why and stuff like that. I don't know. It's hard to say, but just learn stuff, build stuff, teach others how you built it. You know, we all share that knowledge. Don't be tribal about it. It's not, I built this, you can't build this. I built this, you're stepping in my space. It's like someone else built a closed captioning extension. I'm not being like, I'm competing with him. I had him on a panel with me talking about it, you know? And then I know a couple other people that build integrations for closed captioning and we all helped each other. And that's what makes things better. I wouldn't be able to iterate and be where I'm at if I didn't get help from others. And, you know, I had a tough time starting off in my career because, you know, I had no one to inspire me other than myself, and I had to go through school, I had to go to community college to get a degree and stuff like that, because I had no one around me. So try to be somebody that, that can help another person, be that person that I didn't have around me. And that's what I want to be too. I want to be that person that someone can have around to get help with and to help them build and to uplift them and make them grow. Because if you look on tech Twitter, sometimes people complain about like tech culture and stuff like that. It's like the way you wash away and the way you improve tech culture is by uplifting and developing the next generation of developers with the right principles in mind instead of just keeping with the status quo. I love that rising tide lifts all boats. And it just, I think, says so much about somebody that gets petty about things. Like, that was my idea. They integrated my idea. And it's like, no, we're all making each other better. Everyone's better at the end of the day. If you want another way to make people better, we're going to move, this is terrible. We're going to move into our last section of the day where we're going (laughs) to do picks and plugs where we each pick something that we've enjoyed recently, listened to, bought, watched, whatever. And then also a a shameless plug for ourselves. Anybody want to kick us off with a pick and plug? I can start us off. <laughs> Do it. So I'm not sure if this has been plugged before, but I will plug Star Trek's Lower Decks. I absolutely love it. If you're a Star Trek fan, watch Lower Decks. It is so hilarious, and it, it's a deep cut in many ways, and it's good storytelling. They loop back on old storylines and stuff like that, and it's always a great show to watch. 
and then this is by no means sponsored, but I found out that if you have, depending on your T-Mobile plan, if you have a T-Mobile plan, you can get a free year of Paramount Plus. So like that, we're taking advantage of that. So we'll be enjoying Star Trek content for at least 12, for at least a year for free. <laughs> That's awesome. Is that your favorite Star Trek series? Uh, it is now my favorite before okay. it was Voyager. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love Captain Janeway. And do you have a specific plug that you'd like to share? Oh, yeah. I guess I will plug my stream closed captioner. Any caption solution, in fact, not just mine. But if you're looking, think about adding captions to your content. And if you're live streaming on Twitch or Zoom meetings and stuff like that, consider using stream closed captioner or other captioning solutions because there's plenty of people that are hard of hearing or have sensory sensitivities that need captioning and you want to reach the widest audience possible and be inclusive to those audiences by adding captions to your videos. Very cool. Brad, Amy? I will pick the new Taylor Swift album. So that dropped like two days ago. I'm a huge fan. When Spotify comes out, I'm like her point one listener <laughs> of the year. So it's a proud stat. Fellow at Nashvillian. So, but go check it out. I think it's called Midnight. And then for my plug, I'm going to plug my YouTube channel. So self-teach me on YouTube. And it sounds like Brad and I will have some content about publishing NPM packages. Yep, yep. Maybe I'll start with my plug then. So I'm trying to get to a thousand subscribers on YouTube. And yes, some of the videos on there are all about uh, publishing with NPM and then automating that publish step with GitHub Actions. So go check out my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Brad I'm going to say if every listener right now goes and subscribe will help you hit your thousand right now. I'm only like 25 off. Yeah. Then my, what is it? My pick is I've had these sandals for like four years, these reef sandals, and they finally gave out. But like, this is a sandal that lasts for four years. And I live in Texas. I wear sandals like pretty much every day. So I just got a new pair. I love them to death. The coolest feature on them is they have a bottle opener on the bottom. So like if you're ever out like drinking beers with friends and somebody has like a Dos Equis and they can't get the top off, you just take your sandal off, pop the top and it's awesome. Yep. I've been there. They're a San Diego company. I've been wearing them for like 20 years. It's the best. Does anyone like cringe though when you go to open their beer with your foot? <laughs> your <shoe. laughs> like, it starts with like just uh, amazement and excitement. And then they start drinking it and they're like, wait a second, your foot was probably on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Whatever works. Yeah. All right, James, what do you got? Cool. So I am going to pick, don't have one specific, but a camera backpack in general. So I got just a camera like years ago for Christmas before, and we never really used it, to be honest, but got her a backpack with it, just like an Amazon one. It literally says Amazon on the thing, and it's got different compartments for lenses and different things. Also has a big pocket on the back for a laptop and stuff. And I took it with me on these past two trips and it was really nice. So it's super, super big. I fit a ton of stuff in there. And then especially as I like start to take recording equipment with me, it works. I have the different compartments for different pieces of recording equipment. It also has like hiking backpack straps. So it has a strap like around your stomach and then a strap around your chest, which helps when it's heavy and like for back issues when you're carrying it around. So anyway, so I've enjoyed that. I think when we bought that, it was like probably $30 at the time. So you can like search on Amazon and find one that maybe makes sense in a separate from just a regular backpack, one that is like specifically it has the compartments and is made for cameras. So that is my pick. And I guess I'm so I will... surprised you gave up your Costco backpack. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it was kind of a I'm debating about going trying to back. find we'll a see. camera backpack at Costco. If they did, it would be the most amazing backpack in the world. Yeah, that would be the ideal scenario. Costco for the win. And for my plug, I'll plug my YouTube channel as well. Seems to be a good theme for us all. When someone asked in the chat, what is Amy's channel? It's Self Teach Me on YouTube. Brad, is there a G in the middle? Or just Brad Garapy, right? Yeah, just Brad Garapy. Cool. So yeah, YouTube, James Q Quick. And on that note... I think that is going to wrap up the episode. If you enjoyed it, you listen on the podcast, make sure to leave a rating and review, help other people find the podcast so that we can share all the cool stuff that we have with more and more people across the world. But thanks everyone for listening in. That's all we got.